Diversity and Inclusion On Air podcast. This podcast is a program of the Association of American Veterinary Medical College's Diversity Matters Initiative. The podcast is designed to explore various issues related to diversity and inclusion in the veterinary profession and provides AAVMC an opportunity to provide ongoing diversity programming to its member institutions as well as the veterinary profession as a whole. My name is Dr. Lisa Greenhill, and I'm the Associate Executive Director for Institutional Research as well as <laughs> Institutional Research and Diversity at AAVMC. Uh, today's show um, is season two opening. Um, I am so excited to bring the show back for another year. Um, we've got some really great programming on deck for this, uh, this season. Um, today, I am delighted to welcome Drs. Mike Dix and Bridget Bain from the AVMA Econ Division. Hi. Hi, Lisa. Hi. Um, we're going to talk today a bit about all of the kind of economic pressures that we're seeing in the veterinary profession and what kind of impact that might have on diversity. But before we dive into our topic, I want to give our guests um, a moment to kind of briefly introduce themselves and tell us a little bit about themselves and their background. Oh, and I should also add that this is another diversity moment um, important to the show. I think this is the first time that none of our guests have actually been veterinarians <laughs> in the year that we've been doing the programming. So yay for inclusion of those of us who just like to hang around um, and uh, work in and around the profession. So with that, Mike, why don't you get us started? Tell us a little bit about yourselves and your background. Sure. Thanks, Lisa. I'm basically a farm boy that grew up in, in uh, Southern California. Um, most of the people, the predominant people in, in our community were Hispanic, uh, Mexican mostly. Uh, went to school there, went to, went to get my uh, degrees in animal science and biochemistry at, at San Luis Obispo, uh, about the middle of, middle of the California coast. Uh, and then from there, I, I went into Peace Corps, which has sort of uh, uh, caused some of my, my thought processes to change over time. I was in the Peace Corps in Kenya for three and a half years uh, teaching chemistry. Um, uh, I went from there uh, back to school with some work in between. I uh, went to University of Missouri, Columbia to get my uh, master's and PhD degrees in, in agricultural economics. Uh, went to work for the federal government uh, doing um, resource and ag policy. Uh, spent about five years with USDA and then some time with uh, Congress. Uh, and then I was at Oklahoma State University for about 25 years and did stints at various universities as sabbatical before I came here about four years ago. All right, great. Bridget. Yes, um, my name is Bridget Bain and I am from Trinidad and Tobago. I did my undergrad in mathematics and my master's in mathematics and statistics. And then I did my PhD in financial economics in, at the University of New Orleans. So I'm having a blast figuring out the economics of the veterinary profession because it's, uh, the economics is new to me, but veterinary economics is certainly new and exciting. So. Uh, I'm really happy to be doing this podcast. All right. Well, welcome. We are so delighted that you're here. I understand that we have um, four whole viewers watching live right now. Um, I'm expecting more to join us um, to our viewers that are watching live. If you have questions, please just drop them into the uh, comment section on the YouTube page and um, our wonderful, ooh, five, um, our wonderful producer will uh, provide those questions to us. So we'll answer them um, as we go along. 
So um, I told you both in advance that I wanted to drop into one of the hot topics right away, right at the beginning of the show. So what is the deal with the gender wage gap? We know that there's been a lot of talk about that this year. Why is it important? Um, what do you think the re where do you think that the research on the gender gap, um, wage gap will take us? What's going on? So, I mean, it's really interesting. Over, for a few decades, um, AVME has done the senior survey where we look at year to year the changes in incomes and different demographics of new graduates. So recently, what we started doing was a regression where we look at a time series analysis of the different incomes of different levels, different demographics, different genders, different practice types. And although we have published this uh, previously, it just started picking up traction. So this calculator that we that we created showed that there is a gender gap between new male and new female veterinarians with new male veterinarians earning about $2,400 more than female veterinarians. Now, one of the questions that we get about this is that does it control for hours worked? And it does. It controls mm -hmm. for hours worked, uh, practice type, the location. So all these variables are held constant and there is still this $2,400 gap. Uh, another thing that, you know, we really need to mention is that this is not a predictive model. It's not a suggestion. It's not a value statement. It is the results of analysis of 15 years of data and doing a regression over this time. This is what we found. It's just our finding. We don't suggest it. It's just something that we found from doing the analysis. Interestingly enough, there's a lot of different numbers in there that doesn't seem to raise the alarm, for instance, food animal veterinarians, mixed practice, equine, new veterinarians and equine industry, they also get significantly less than veterinarians and companion animal exclusive. So, you know, we just presenting raw information as we calculate it. Right, so raw information, I'm getting a little bit of feedback here, raw information with no value statements associated with it. So um, I know that uh, the Women's Veterinary Leadership Development Initiative held a networking session. And Bridget, you participated in that and, and talked a bit about the wage gap. Um, do you see uh, some research kind of look, you know, kind of coming down the pipe for your division between you and Mike around this wage gap? Yeah, absolutely. So we did some work with WBLDI, as you mentioned. and. Uh, we are really interested in the why. So far, we have the what. So one of the main objectives of that was to first get some hypotheses so that we can determine what area of research we need to lead down so that we can get more information to tell people, well, this is why. We have a lot of hypotheses, for instance, uh, the location of females, fewer negotiation skills are more timid, but we don't know for sure because we have not done research on that. So that was one of the main objectives of working with that group so that we can figure out the why ultimately. And let's, let's go back and, 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 and go to a higher level and talk about why we went down that road in the first place, why we were even interested. And uh, so, so as economists, what we're trying to do is figure out if we have income and we see there's a large variation in income, we want to try to figure out why is there that large variation in income. And so we start to look at factors that theory would tell us might cause that. So we looked at practice type, we looked at region, we looked at hours worked, we looked at gender, uh, we looked at 
a, a lot of different demographic characteristics. And, and so what we wanted to do was give that information back to the profession. When I first got here, I had a lot of calls that would, would people call me up and say, what's the average uh, salary? So because I, I'm going to hire somebody and I want to know what the average salary is. And, and that really uh, uh, perplexed me because, uh, you know, if you're calling from New York and asking me that question and somebody's calling me from, uh, uh, from rural Alabama, uh, using that national number isn't going to do justice to the person that's going to work there. So we wanted to get out. Here's what is, is happening in your neighborhood type of idea. Um, so, so that's where we went. Uh, unfortunately, when you read the, the, the thing we put out on gender or on, on the salary that used gender, it was the number one, it was the first uh, factor that affected income that was in that flow diagram. Probably if it had been at the end and they'd worked through the thing, it wouldn't have caused uh, such a stir. But uh, for us as economists, we just looked at it as this is one of the factors that affected income. We want you to understand how that factor has affected income in the past. So. Okay, great. So we look forward to kind of hearing more about the, the research, um, the hypothesis. I'm sure that my office will also be looking at that and partnering with you. So Mike, why don't you give us a, a brief synopsis of kind of what are some of the big economic concerns um, in the profession right now? I mean, we know that these are things that we talk about all the time. These aren't new issues, but why don't you kind of give us uh, um, the kind of quarter tour, if you will? Yeah, I, it's really a fascinating. Um, over the last year, I think we've we've really the profession's really started to meld around several several big issues. Uh, of course, one is debt. Uh, for those uh, veterinarians that have been out for less than ten years, uh, debt's a major issue. Uh, but as I like to say when I go out and talk to the students, debt in itself isn't a problem. What's a problem is not being able to service that debt. So now we have to look at the income side, and I think to me. The biggest problem in the profession, and I've been saying that for the last three, three years, is the fact that there is a lot of need out there that we're not able to turn into demand. So the incomes are a lot less than they should be because we're not able to facilitate uh, the animal owner's need for that quality of care for those animals. So how we figure out how to do that is really the issue. And, and if we do that, will that be income sufficient to service those debts such that uh, people feel more comfortable with it. In other words, you know, if if the veterinarians were making the same income as a, a anesthesiologist, would they we would we be even talking about the debt? And I think that's the that's the key to me is how much of this is income and how much of it is actually debt. Certainly, we want to do something about managing uh, the cost of education, but we also want to look at our own picture and say what can we do with our own markets. Sure, sure. So. So we've got both both sides of this equation. Um, do you see these kinds of issues really impacting, you know, how do you think about this through a diversity lens? How might this affect us um, as a profession? Um, certainly we have, we've got women where we've got this $2,400 uh, historical differential, which is probably a loan payment, right? <laughs> So um, each year we've got um, a dearth of men, um, not very many people of color. Um, do, do you see kind of a trend on how or kind of think about how this might affect the future of diversity in the profession? Well, there's a, there's, there's, I mean, this is a, this is a really enormous issue that, 
that you're bringing up, Lisa, and it's, and it's time that it's, that it's discussed and it's time that it's discussed openly. When you're a white man, this is a really difficult conversation to have. But as an economist, just looking at that way, um, here, the, the thing that I want to talk to people about is let's start with the demographics of the United States. And, and let's look at what's happening to the demographics. And of course, um, the Caucasian group of that is declining relative to all the other uh, ethnicities. Right. And so the fact that uh, veterinary medicine is not following that trend, right, means that you're gonna have people in situations that they may, they may have to practice medicine or the clients may have to get a, a veterinarian that, that they're not exactly comfortable with. So, so that in itself is a problem that we should be having a discussion about, about how we're going to deal with that issue. Um, the other one that's, that's, that's blatant, that's been going on for over a decade, is what's happening to the men? Why are there so many fewer and fewer men in the profession? And what does that mean for the profession long run? Um, we know that from all the surveys that men are working an average of 47 hours while women are working 41 hours. We also know that there's this... Um, preponderance of women in the middle in their middle career that want to take time off or want to switch more emphasis on quality of life rather than whether than work um, except that how is that going to affect what happens in the profession with in terms of man manpower and labor demand when when we switch from an 80 percent male to an 80 percent female profession over the next 15 years so those are some serious issues that we need to think about uh, as well as practice ownership um, who's owning the practices and why don't more females want to be a practice owners and how will that affect the structure of the, of the profession? Will more corporate people uh, be purchasing those practices simply because there aren't enough people, the independent practices? All of these are enormous issues for what's going to happen in the profession for the next 15 to 20 years. And we're just now uh, trying to get a handle on that. Bridget? And so yeah, thanks. To piggyback on what Mike said, another issue that we see is that the graduates now are 80% female and they're 90% white, the new graduates, and they are coming from suburbia and they want to go back to suburbia to practice. So you have areas in the United States that there's a veterinary hospital on every corner and then there's areas where there are no hospitals for miles. And uh, our job board has showed us that there is 0.7 applicants for every veterinary opening position. However, if these applicants don't want to go to where the jobs are because they want to go back, quote unquote, home to practice, this really creates a problem where, you know, there's not too many veterinarians, but they just all want to go back to a general area where they grew up. Mm. So this really affects affects the profession. And in addition to that, with women earn, starting salaries being $2,400 less, we didn't mention that their income, their, their debt, they graduate with approximately $7,000 more debt than the new male veterinarians. So we're having a profession that's converging into the majority women that are earning less and that are incurring more debt. So this is going to be a huge problem when, you know, women are the majority of the entire profession. It's, they're going to be low earners and high you know, incur high debts. So at the risk of having our season opener sound a bit like a chicken little <laughs> scenario, what should we do? I mean, and certainly there's a lot of conversations about things like increasing financial literacy. And um, we know that um, uh, our organizations, along with Michigan State, hosted the Fix the Debt Summit and, and all of those kinds of things. There's certainly activities associated with that. Um, but what do you see um, 
as some of the opportunities for us to kind of course correct, maybe, or at least <laughs> mitigate the damage? I think what Bridget said uh, earlier is is really important for everybody to keep keep in mind is that is what we've just ex explained is the what. What we really need to know is the why. So why aren't men coming in like they used to? Why aren't we getting more um, people of diverse uh, cultural backgrounds becoming veterinary uh, veterinarians? Uh, the the one thing that she pointed out that I think a lot of people miss is that diversity in terms of uh, a social background whether you're from a rural area, whether you're from a suburban area or whether you're from an urban area, that mix is changing in the United States too. And we're not keeping track of that in the veterinary medicine. So we have a lot of, uh, as you know, uh, a lot of the, most of MCAS um, applicants are from suburbia and they wanna go back to suburbia. So that's not the shift right now. The shift is from suburb to, to uh, urban setting. Sure. And so, we think that the population centers are going to be more concentrated in the urban centers, which is where we're going to need vets, but to go to vet school out of suburbs, and that's where they want to go back, and we're not having them in the rural. The same thing is true with food animal and mixed animal and equine. Those are predominantly men um, professions, and as we have fewer and fewer men, how are they going to be able to continue uh, operating? So all of those things, what we need to figure out is why is all that happening? Hmm. What are, the, what are the constraints to keeping people from coming in? What are the things that we're not doing uh, to try to make it easier uh, for, for, for people that are not included in the, in the mix now to get into the mix? Bridget? <laughs> yeah. And you know, one thing that I think is also not a really difficult fix is that now the net present value between veterinarians and in industry and those in mixed animal, it's about a million dollars. So I think veterinarians really need to do a better job of letting their students and their new, their, the new members of the profession know that there are so many opportunities outside of companion animal practice, because it seems that everybody just wants to go into companion animal practice. Right now, over 60% of the profession is in companion animal practice. But there are lots of opportunities where there are, you know, persons looking for veterinarians at times. At the Fix to Death Summit, you know, it was really interesting because we had a lot of veterinarians there that said, you know, I created my position. I told my employer that you need a veterinarian for this job. So, you know, it's a very diverse profession and there are a lot of gaps that they can fill. But I think it's really important that they promote to new students. You don't have to do this. Or if you want to do companion animal, you can do something else, start an industry, starting in another practice type and then switch over just to increase your starting salary because we know that it really takes yeah. a toll on your earnings path where you start. Sure, sure. And you know, you know, Lisa, this gets back to what uh, I know that you've been talking about a long time. It's about the application, right? And if we're having a set of requirements for applicants that don't include those things. So what about, uh, you know, if, if somebody did um, three years of internship with Monsanto in an, in an animal health area, mm -hmm. is that equivalent to someone doing 1,500 hours of service in, in, in practice? Do they get looked at the same way in college? If not, then we're adversely selecting against people that want to go into industry. So, so again, that's, that's something we need to look at. Um, me is, uh, three years ago, we had uh, two veterinarians for every, two veterinary uh, job applicants for every veterinary job that was out there. Uh, today we have 0.7, and this follows the business cycle, and we're always going to have that. So, so when that happens, when you get a tight supply, people can do what they want to do, and they can move to where 
either the money is better or whether whether it's a better suited job for them. Mm -hmm. uh, so, but when it's when it's two to one, they kind of have to take what's out there. Yeah. So as you go through that, uh, you're going to have those shifts around in, in the profession, and we really need to try to figure out what is it that the profession needs in the next ten years, and we start getting the applicants that will meet that demand. A long, that's a long order and something we're working on that'll take a while. Sure. So how many veterinarians are, I guess, practicing in, in rural areas, no matter their practice type, uh, whether it's large or mixed or companion animal or whatever, but how many do you have a, a, a estimate on how many are practicing um, in what we would consider a rural community? Yeah, we have the data. We just don't know the number. All right, that was a that was a. I, I stumped you. No worries. We will get that, and we'll certainly embed it into um, the uh, the after 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 show. So, um, and I and I ask because it's kind of interesting in the application and our our surveys that we do after um, the cycle closes. Um, we find that about one, one in four um, students report coming from a small community, um, a rural community, but about closer to 30% actually indicate that they would like to move to a rural community to practice. So that number is actually a little bit elevated, but then something seems to happen <laughs> over the next four years um, where it seems that fewer of them want to go. Um, to, um, you know, a rural area later. So, um, so it's kind of, you know, I'm kind of curious to know how many, you know, do that. So, well, we've, been, we've actually been working on some maps that show uh, concentration of veterinarians, and you can cl really clearly see that uh, it is the suburbs around major cities. Mm -hmm. and, and what you're saying is really interesting because keep in mind that that that's a, a a moving target of what's rural. So sure. you, move, you move from suburbs, sub, the, from the suburbs out, and it depends on what the size of that city is, how far out you go before you actually are considered rural by, by a sense of standards. So a lot of people may think that they're in a rural area when they're in a community of 50 to 100,000. Uh, right? Whereas other people will think they're rural when they're in a community that's 100, that's 1,000. Right. So, and, and we have, you know, there's a there's a whole uh, distribution there, but we can see on the maps that when you get out, like uh, in the western parts of the country, there's very very few veterinarians in those sparse areas. So then, are there? I mean, those folks have animals, so so that so you know, do they have? Do you believe that those areas have? Um, are they considered underserved or? adequately served or is there a need for people to just really move there or are people not there because they there isn't a substantial need yeah i think this is the big debate about whether we have enough or not enough of food animal veterinarians and the answer is yes there are underserved areas but will those areas support a, a full-time veterinarian and, mm -hmm. and typically the answer is no um, when we look at the the survey we did with the bovine practitioners uh, some of those veterinarians are traveling uh, 250 mile radius for a business area. That becomes very expensive because you're spending a lot of time on the road rather than providing services. And whether they can charge to get that time paid for mm -hmm. is, is, is probably not going to happen, right? I mean, there's a limit that you can charge for, for a service call and still have the person call you. 
So that's a, that's kind of the problem is there's not enough density mm. of people uh, for that for that to take place for a business to be viable. Mm. So, well, what's encouraging about the current situation? What's kind of, you know, are, what are the opportunities? What's the upside? Well, I, to me, I think the thing is that it's an incredibly diverse and vibrant profession. I mean, when, when I use the word diverse and I look at the practices out there, there are so many different types of practices and so many different types of uh, demographic areas. And, and we can parlay that into success. We, we know that we can go into places, I've been to places all over this country where there are uh, ethnically uh, centered communities and, and the veterinarians are having a difficult time penetrating that community because they're not of that ethnicity and don't understand that culture. Uh, so there are other veterinarians had have realized that and hired somebody in from that mm -hmm. and made, made great headways. So there's a lot of ways of doing that. And, and what I was saying earlier about uh, this need to, to go out and, and capture more of the need for quality animal care and turn it into demand. Part of that comes from this, this argument about diversity. If the profession can become more diverse, we can probably capture more of that market. Mm -hmm. So there is a, so, I mean, you know, there is our, our key call for um, certainly racial and ethnic, our efforts. Um, for all of our organizations to continue working on racial and ethnic diversity. Certainly there are other kinds of things that we're thinking about. Certainly we do need men um, and we need men <laughs> from well, any and all backgrounds. <laughs> when we've had enough data on, on, ethnic, on ethnic groups of veterinarians, we have been able to show that, but it's, and it's, and it's you know, it's, it's difficult because there's too few of them, right. but we've been able to show that like uh, I think two years ago, there was enough uh, enough uh, Hispanic um, veterinarians yeah, that Hispanic. that we could identify that the Hispanic veterinarians were making more money than their white counterparts. Oh wow! Right? So we wonder why that is, but we don't have enough of them to do that analysis. Right. See, so, so that's what I think is really fascinating to me is is um, you know when you go into uh, a uh, ethnic center, a population center, and they exist all over the country, as you know. So when you go into that center and you and you look at veterinarians there, can we go in and do a study in those places to find out, OK, here is a uh, two practices that are very similar, but one has a, a, a population of staff in that that are closely aligned to that ethnicity in that cultural center compared to the other one. Is there a difference in the income earning of those two two practices? It'd be a great study. We just have to identify where those practices are. Sure, sure. So, yeah, Bridget? Yeah, I was going to say, you know, in addition to that, veterinarians weren't immune to the recession when it hit in 2008, 2009. And for the first time since then, since 2007, the U.S. Census reported that there was a 5.2% increase in the median income of Americans for the first time since 2007. So that's good news because now Americans have more disposable income that they can spend at the veterinarian. Yes. <laughs> For those folks that know that that, that uh that you know I have of course I have um long had an animal my dogs um and and you know yeah I go to the vet for some I mean I've had to take him to the vet because he had duct tape stuck to his foot earlier this year I am that client <laughs> the client that veterinarians love to see that like cost me forty bucks to get it off and I didn't complain because I couldn't figure out how to get it off. 
So what do you see is kind of discouraging, um, you know, what is the kind of gloom and doom prognosis? We've talked a bit about the opportunities, but I mean, I guess what are the things that really um, should scare us um, about kind of the economic status of the profession right now? I think the changing uh, structure, it's changing so quickly and it's not changing in the favor of, of a veterinarian. Um, so there's so much uh, more corporation corporization of, of veterinary practices, um, that's going to be difficult to overcome that, um, that momentum forward as, as more and more uh, people figure out that they can make a lot of money by owning multiple veterinary practices, more of the equity markets are going to get into it. And that's going to be um, very difficult for new veterinarians to compete against. So, so it, it, unless we can find a way to stop that and provide uh, different business models so that young veterinarians can come in and take over those practices and be successful at it. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we're going to, the veterinarians are going to lose some of the control over their own profession. Oh, well, that is scary. <laughs> so um, what kinds of things you've got, you, you know, we were joking before the show started about your lovely equations in the background. What kind of things have you got cooking over um, in the econ division? Tip your hand a little bit. Well, I mean, the biggest one is the, the new studies we, we're doing on, on, uh, on pet demographics to try to figure out what pet owners really want. What are they willing to pay for? What are they doing? Why are they doing it? And, and really try to get a sense of that, not just nationally, but in specific markets. We want to know, is the market in Atlanta different than the market in, in San Francisco and different than the market in Bozeman, Montana? So, so um, we, we have a, a, a five-year plan laid out. Uh, we have um, a lot of... Uh, uh, partners in industry that are participating in that. They're uh, providing us questions that they want to know for their own products and services. I'm pretty excited about that. We have not focused on the pet owner, right? And and that's, you know, that's what's driving this whole profession is that. Sure. Pet owner. And so we need to figure out not only the pet owner, but that a uh, farm and ranch uh, animal owner, mm -hmm. that person. We need to know what it is that they want, what it is that they think about veterinary services, and then how do we make those things change in our benefit and in the animal's benefit. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm really excited about our tools that we have. And I just, I think it's so awesome when practice owners come to us and they tell us, you know, I have this new associate and they said that they use your tool and they should be getting this. So I think information is really power. When people understand what's going on around them, when they understand what they're worth, I think that's really valuable. And we've also done a lot of work with practice owners and their practice managers, and people are hungry to improve the profitability of their practice, and they really want to get the information. And it's just a really exciting path ahead of us for us to get into practices and let them know, you know, how they can utilize their software to the best that it can be used, how they can really utilize their practice managers and to take control of their finances. Different models that we show them that's not very common, like the earns and turns that we talk about. So just those things I think are really exciting for the profession right now. Okay. okay. So um, what kinds of things, what kinds of opportunities do you see for uh, AVMC and AVMA to work on? Certainly we've got lots of things that we share and, and kick back and forth. Um, where are some opportunities for us to kind of continue the work that we do? Certainly I'll be, um, uh, most of us and hopefully a lot of our viewers will be at the summit next month, but 
um, and that's an opportunity for for both of us to kind of talk a bit about what we're working on and, and what we see coming down the pike. But where are some opportunities for us to kind of work together kind of on the front end and the back end? So when we, we look at applicants here um, and kind of, you know, the pipeline, um, how do we, how do you see us kind of working together moving forward? One of the, one of the, um, really the fun things for me um, going forward is this idea that uh, AVMC knows a great deal about uh, all the incoming applicants and then what happens in those schools. We, we take them from there and, and then we take them and we try to follow them to retirement. Um, well, blending that together so that we can figure out what path did you choose based on characteristics that we knew about you when you were an undergraduate and doing those longitudinal studies will really be important for the schools to try to help, help them um, figure out more efficient ways of identifying the students, the applicants that they need to direct them at a, to a specific um, uh, choice, career choice. Mm -hmm. and, 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 then, and then whether they have problems and what kind of problems, what kind of finance do they need, et cetera, those kind of things. We haven't really looked at that yet. We've sort of just said, you know, uh, here's what we're gonna do at the schools. We're gonna go out yeah. and find people to fill the seats. And we're going to hope for the best. But with big data now, we have a, we do a little bit more than that. Well, yeah. <laughs> I'm simplifying. You're right. Uh, <laughs> thanks for calling me on it. <laughs> but, but, I, but, I, but I think you get what I'm saying is, is we can bring a lot more data and a lot more information to the table to really help people understand what's going on. Why that's something based on what you knew about them from, from the get-go. And so the more we can do that, the more information we give to the colleges, the better we will be at at um, making that supply chain more efficient to doing to producing the kinds of uh, veterinarians that we want. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I really think it's it's crucial for you know the profession to to have applicants to attract applicants that are more diverse, applicants that are willing to to go to Africa and and you know do zoonotic disease medicine, that are willing to go into industry. I think it's really you know. It's, we're doing an injustice to the profession if we do not make an extra effort to attract those kind of applicants. And I heard Bridget say zoonotic, which I'm impressed. Awesome, <laughs> awesome. All of our we're learning, right? That's good. That's good. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, it's, um, it's interesting. We've certainly learned a lot um, at AAVMC about kind of um, the folks that are, are choosing the profession. And of course, some of those folks we know you know, kind of in the womb, that they're like, I want to grow up to be a veterinarian. Um, but there's certainly a, a proportion of them that um, kind of comes to the profession later in their um, primary and secondary um, education and kind of discover us, right? Um, you know, we found some some interesting things. I mean, and we've talked about this publicly before, and certainly at the summits, things like. Um, the, the kinds of hours that students put in trying to become eligible to apply for veterinary school and how many of them um, are paid and unpaid and um, I mean and how many years they really put in <laughs> doing some of those hours. Um, you know students sometimes put into their applications that you know they have it's very um, uh, uh, Mike Myers, very one million hours <laughs> of contact with <laughs> research or working in clinics and shelters and those types of things. Um, we know that our, our applicants have a lot of pets, a lot. Um, they, they have a number of pets. 
and it's, you know, it's really interesting because we at AVMC, we published a paper on this um, maybe a year, year and a half ago, and um, someone said, oh, someone said, well, you know, the pet ownership thing once they get to vet school isn't so bad because, well, they get a discount at the hospital and, um, you know, they get food discounts and all of those types of things. And I was like, yeah, that encourages <laughs> this behavior. <laughs> Because they still have to pay, you know, increased potential rents um, to house their animals or board their animals for those that are bringing larger animals and kind of incurring more debt. Um, and, and we see this as kind of a physical representation of the passion of the profession. And um, at AVMC, my colleague Tony Wynn and I are always like, get rid of the animals before you go to vet school, divest, divest, get rid of them. So, you know, these are some of the things that we're working on and, and we um, are really excited about opportunities to, to do some longitudinal work with you um, and kind of looking at um, where our applicants are coming from, what their interests are very early on in the process and um, thinking about, you know, how do they make decisions? We started a new um, survey this year where we, um, we not only um, ask our um, students or applicants that apply internationally kind of what goes into that decision to apply internationally, but we also now survey them after um, they have decided where to go. Um, and certainly cost is a big driver of that decision making, but it's really, um, there are really a number of other things that they weigh in. Um, I, I would like to see kind of cost almost be a stronger <laughs> influencer, but there are a lot of things that they consider really important um, as consumers of education. Yeah. yeah. I, I thought you raised a really great point, um, talking about the number of community service hours, volunteer hours, and it is just not a viable option for somebody in a lower income community to work for one thousand, to volunteer for a thousand hours. So having that be an unspoken criteria it really eliminates a lot of the applicants. Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, um, so without tipping some of um, the new things that we'll be presenting um, next month at the, the Economic Summit, we have some new data on who's getting um, the scholarship money um, that is available. And I will say that it seems to be far more geared to merit than need, um, which is not, an, uh, um, not out of step with what we're seeing in higher ed. Um, the need-based folks are, are still pretty need-based. Um, but what we do find is that our lower SES students, um, and we're using uh, Pell Grant recipients or Pell eligible as a proxy for low SES, we're finding that um, more of them are um, presenting um, one of the ways that they kind of are able to pay or intend to pay for undergrad and part of their graduate work is through military benefits, which is really um, interesting. And, and um, I think that we'll be having some data come out in our next newsletter on that topic, and I'll be talking about that next month at your meeting. So, yeah. So any uh, important parting words that you want to share, things that are going on um, in your office? I'm pretty excited for the senior survey data to get out um, at the summit in October. So that's going to be huge. All right. Okay. So 
it's, it's a good time to be graduating. Yes. <laughs> It's a good time to be graduating. And on that note, I think that we will uh, uh, end on a high note. Um, thank you so much for joining us for this uh, first episode of season two. Um, when that uh, pet uh, owner data is in, I'd love for you to both kind of come back and talk about what you found and um, kind of explore some issues around diversity within um, that work as well. Thanks a lot, Lisa. Thanks, we'd be Lisa. we'd be delighted to come back. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. All right.